Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's probably a bad way to open the 19th most popular podcast on the internet. You really wanted to say that today, didn't you? I did, I did, I did. Ever since you sent me that thing, Sophie, I've been trying. I wanted to work it in organically, though, right? Otherwise, people would think that we're, you know, we're losing our minds from the yeah. fame. Yeah. Hell yeah. yeah. But, I, but, but we are number 19. Andrew Proof, we are number 19. Oh, my God. Yeah. Congratulations. Wow. We are number Congratulations to us. Yeah, from us. We're not lying. We're this is 19. like when I buy myself a Christmas present. <laughs> yeah. Just like a little treat. It's like mm-hmm. it's like getting yeah. a extra extra donut. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Have an a, extra have donut. A something. Andrew T. What how, up? How goes how goes the strike, Andrew? Uh still striking. I brought um mm-hmm. a uh, a second dog to the picket line on Friday. Wow. A and second she, dog has hit the picket line. She was a huge hit. That's good. That's good. That's yeah. good. Um, that's all. I mean, as of this episode coming out, we're closer to it's potentially possible that the strike is over by the time you hear this. I would give it. 15% chance the strike is mm-hmm. over and this is all mm-hmm. silly this intro mm-hmm. but um again yeah, we'll if see. the strike is over I we will cut in an ad for a random television <laughs> show um you know yeah uh, exactly yeah yeah it'll it'll be good Andrew as we speak this two great Hollywood celebrities, real, real like Titans of the industry uh, just oh, announced that they were bringing yeah, their yeah. shows back and then got, got curb stomped uh, the yeah. verbal equivalent of curb stomped. Yes. Um, yeah. Is that funny or not? How, how, how are you, where are you landing on that? I, um, <laughs> cause where I'm I, sitting, I think it was pretty funny. <laughs> I, the, the about face came so quickly that it was I really truly, it was like two days. Like, yeah. It, yeah. So, so that, that kind of like the whiplash of it, I think the, the equally funny part is everyone having to kind of walk back 
um, congratulation or walk back the things they said to Drew Barrymore, who I think people largely still kind of like, um, and then also not really doing the equivalent for Bill Maher. Who yeah. is- <laughs> I don't, I, the, the not funny side of it is the uh, telling people that they uh, can start working again when they actually can't. And I'm yes. not, and, and like that's that's the people that are not, you know, SAG or WGA that work on sets and being like, oh, you're going to get to come back to work. And the answer is no, you're not. And I'm just a selfless narcissist. Yeah, yeah. there there was no good reason for any of this. I mean, the no. the Drew Barrymore of it, it's I'm just going to give, I guess, her the benefit of the doubt and say she was probably deceived over what the rules are. And I will equally assume that Bill Maher, given his personal politics, um, he would have scabbed sooner. He just didn't have the opportunity. His season, he oh was on God. summer, summer Is there break. anybody else mm-hmm. that would have loved to have scabbed more than Bill Maher? I don't know. Yeah. Don't yeah. Know. So whatever they have on him, it's very legit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah. yeah. No, I mean, because he would have been just straight up openly scabbing, whereas... Um, Drew Barrymore would have been like functionally almost certainly scabbing on some level, um, but in a much more difficult to prove way. But, but you know, Bill Maher's a member of the Writers Guild. Fuck him. Yeah. 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 Fuck Bill Maher is more or less where we're we're heading here. You know, yeah. who, unlike Bill Maher, you know, you know, who <laughs> has been consistent in their principles all of their lives is G. Gordon Liddy, the G man. One he thing you really... got to give Liddy. Yeah, he never uh, he's always been been honest about who he is. Uh, yeah, that's not a great thing. You know, it's like. But it yeah. is a thing. Yeah, you got to you, you got to acknowledge that. So when yeah. we when we last left off the G man, uh, <laughs> he had joined the FBI um, compared it directly to the SS uh, in a positive sense. Favorably. Right? Yeah, favorably. Um, yeah, as America's protective echelon. So he's in Indiana a while. He learns how to cowboy gunfight from these great cowboy gunfighters. Um, and then, he, uh, and then he, he, he totally gets super close to needing to use his handgun, but he never quite has to. But he, wa- he does have like multiple stories where he like it's everything up to and then like but then before I could pull my gun you know the situation ended so everything was fine well maybe we don't need to hear about that then that's not very interesting G. Gordon Liddy so he gets transferred to uh, Denver after that Uh, he's involved in he is involved in the arrest of at least one major criminal one of the one of these guys that's on the FBI's most wanted list Um, and then based uh, according to his like recitation of events, he gets transferred to uh, FBI headquarters in DC and he becomes incredibly close with J. Edgar Hoover. So close that all of the older uh, agents are jealous because Hoover wants to spend a lot of time with Liddy and not them. So that's not what happened. Uh, And again, this is thankfully, this is what I'm not going into as much detail about what Liddy claims because we have, we have other sources on his time in the FBI and they are very different than what he claims. So he is involved in one high profile arrest, but there's evidence that his superiors like they had issues with his erratic and irrational behavior. Uh, one of his supervisors described him as a wild man and a super klutz. Um, <laughs> basically just like, yeah, th- this guy is kind of out of his mind. And he's also like, he fucks up constantly. Like whenever, yeah. whenever he's given a chance to do something, he's 
going to make some stupid mistake. He's like and, a Nazi Elmer Fudd in a way yeah, that is yeah. like. Really, it's a great comparison. <laughs> <laughs> and and so the, adi- the the kind of attitude that like some of these people who like supervise him is is like, yeah, he just he couldn't be relied on. And because it's you know, this is the FBI, right? One thing the FBI, especially under Hoover, was good at was not leaking shit. So we don't have as much detail as I'd like on what specifically he fucked up. But given that this is consistent with his performance later in life, I'm going to choose to side with his superiors here rather than claim that he was just super good at the FBI. Um, Uh, Yeah. Yeah. And this makes if he's if he really is just like kind of incompetent it makes his transfer to DC make sense because like that is kind of what they did a lot to guys who were bad at being in the field. Like you move them a place <laughs> where you can kind of, you can keep track of them. Like he gets, he gets transferred to the record division, which right. is like, that's where you put a dude. You can't fire for some reason, but who like can't be trusted out with a gun. <laughs> that's like the punishment in like the second act of a loose cannon cop movie. Right. Like, yeah. That is yeah, go file some papers, <laughs> G. Gordon Liddy. Stay the fuck away from from the world. Um, Liddy would go on to claim that he was the youngest bureau supervisor in agency history. Uh, you'll see this cited in like write ups of his career periodically, but they only ever cite him. So I'm going to go ahead and say that's probably either not true or not impressive. Right. Um, he did get a couple of like commendations from Hoover, but like that's not. It doesn't appear to be that big a deal. Uh, Wikipedia also lists those claims as citations needed. So again, <laughs> not gonna not gonna go out on a limb and say he was definitely <laughs> awarded by Hoover. Um, former FBI officials interviewed by journalist Anthony Lucas later would claim that Liddy got pushed out of the FBI because he was seen as dangerous and unreliable. Um, you know, we don't get tons of detail on what exactly caused him to get pushed out, but there are some pieces from Liddy's autobiography that may suggest why. For example, this line. My son, Jim, was born in April of 1961, and I was so elated at finally having a boy that when I thought about it the next day, driving through an unpopulated area, I stopped the car and fired three rounds into the air in a private ceremony of celebration. (laughs) Just firing his service weapon randomly into the sky to celebrate. Yeah, unpopulated area. Okay, Liddy. Pop, pop, pop. <laughs> pop, pop, oh, pop. Man. It is, it is wild having done this show a few times now. How much of history's damage has been done by huge nerds? Yeah, just a big old dork. It's really like, how did it? Yeah. I mean, I guess that's why, but it, mm-hmm. it's, you know, we're not, we're not cruel enough to nerds, I'm realizing. No, like a, that's, yeah. I, I think we need like a national conversation about how to be crueler to them, though. Yes, yes, like yes, yes. The, what's the pro- what's the actual appropriate way to handle this? Right. That's like, the problem is the wrong people are bullies. Yeah, the wrong because you, you like somebody needed to G. Gordon Liddy needed more shame of, of the things that were going on in his head. He needed to feel worse in yeah. a specific way about himself. But like if you just had again, like a kid just like shoving him into a locker at school, that's not going to work on this guy. You need there needs to right. be some more like art to it, you know, like yeah. really. His dad, I don't know. I don't know how you like get it. Like, I think if his dad had been more aware of the kind of shit going on in his brain, he could have like shaved it out of him. Like, right. What are you doing? Shooting your handgun in the air to celebrate having a kid. Give me that gun. Give me that gun, Gordon. Like, I'm keeping this. 
<laughs> no gun yeah. privileges until you fucking. You're not allowed this. to have this. Yeah. Uh, oh. It's it's pretty cool, and he he has like he goes on this rant in his book about how like at the FBI, you know, you're allowed to carry a gun off duty, and you don't have to. But if you're in a bad situation, if something happens around you, and you're not able to stop it because you don't have a gun, you get in trouble. So I always had my gun. He just he needs you, and again, there's never any. Like it, it, it's one of those like it feels almost like he's setting up something that's going to happen later. But G. Gordon Liddy never had any cause to use a firearm in his entire life. <laughs> like at, at no point was this even remotely necessary for him. So he's this is all just pointless. He just needs you to know that he carried a gun around for several years. <laughs> God, I know the the like the like, oh, no, no, I need this because if I don't fucking save the day i'm gonna get in trouble mm-hmm. it's like yeah. still somehow weaselly which mm-hmm. is amazing it's just like oh. yeah it's so funny so liddy claims that everyone at the fbi loved him but he just wasn't making enough money to support his growing family because his wife his wife is popping out kids at an alarming <laughs> rate right she is like putting out new liddies at the same speed with which he is firing bullets wildly in <laughs> the air. It's and it, and it this becomes a problem. He says for their for their bottom line, and so you know he decides to quit. And the FBI is like, "We love you, Liddy. You know, come back anytime. We'd love to have you again. We've we've stamped your paperwork with a special thing that means you can come back anytime you want." Oh, uh, again, you're leaving. Oh no! Oh, oh no! Shit! Oh, People well. within the FBI are like, "Yeah, we were doing everything we could to force him to leave." Um, so, you know, that said, I do think there's probably a good chance his family financial situation is not great. Uh, one of these reasons might be, and again, this is a reading between the lines, but every time he talks about his gun collection, it's like very large. <laughs> so part of this may just be that he's spending all of his child money on new handguns. Um, now, the central issue is that Liddy and his wife are devout Catholics. Now, I don't know if you know much about Catholics, but Catholics, like all humans, like to fuck. And Catholics, unlike most humans, are not allowed to use birth control, right? Right. So this is part of why there's around a billion of Catholics, you know? <laughs> uh, <laughs> so Liddy and his wife, they try to use the rhythm method to avoid having more kids. And he, mm. he, he can't write that, like, well, the rhythm method's clearly bullshit. So he just writes that, like, well, it didn't work for us. You know, we had after four <laughs> children, it had become clear that the rhythm method does not work for my wife (laughs) maybe it just doesn't work g gordon liddy maybe it's a bad method of birth control oh my god hey everyone uh my phrasing here was not great i didn't mean to say that the rhythm method like can't work you know obviously biologically it does it's just that realistically i don't think it is an effective method of birth control particularly for people in long-term relationships i think g gordon liddy's Uh, case is a pretty good example of this. There are a lot of others, but obviously like biologically, if you were to do it perfectly, it it would work. It's just not a very good idea compared to modern forms of contraception. And what a missed opportunity to talk about what, what amazing sperm he has, you know, he could have just claimed he was unbelievably fertile. He's, he's just too potent. Yeah. Yeah. The fact that the rhythm method doesn't work is not really this is not really a problem for G. Gordon Liddy because he wanted six children and he claims that Fran did, too. Um, (laughs) And in true G. Gordon Liddy fashion, his reasoning for wanting six kids is some of the craziest shit I've ever read. (laughs) Quote. 
She had grown up as a lonely, only child. I had a sister and a cousin who was a de facto brother, and I missed a large number of people always present at home. I was also aware that children can be lost to sickness, accident, or war, and six would raise substantially the probability that at least some offspring would survive. Just as important, I recognized that a child can lose itself through failure of the will to achieve, and that having six would make it easier to accept and write off such a living death as well. Yeah. <laughs> you um, need more kids so you can write them off if one of them is a dead person while alive still. Well, he, I think he just kind of on some level knows he's he's bringing real loser genes to the table. So he's really <laughs> hedging his bets. Yeah. You got to be careful if you're like bringing Liddy, Liddy grade uh, uh, genetics yeah. to the table because it's that kid's just going to be a fuck up. <laughs> You know, it's just tough. He he's he brings fuck up to the table. So you like, you know, you break out the Punnett square, mm-hmm. a little bit of recessive traits. <laughs> yeah. How did he, the, the math that got him personally to six? I would love to see. I'd love to see his little scrawled notebook, like one loser, one yeah. dead. <laughs> yeah. Theory, one, at least one of them's going to, you know, lose them, <laughs> lose their mind. So we got to we gotta write one off. And being Liddy's a good at three of them are going to die in a yeah. war. So that gives us two that make it to. <laughs> yeah. Two. And then one of them's a natural loser. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. This is just the minimum we need. You know, just given given my worthless genes, this is the only way to <laughs> ensure enough Liddy's survival. Oh. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 uh, logic like this that has ensured that we still have G. Gordon Liddy's today, everybody. So, <laughs> yeah. Oh now, uh, unfortunately, Fran's body does not handle multiple pregnancies in quick succession very well. Right. And, yeah, I don't say that to, like, make fun of her. Four kids, I think eventually five in, you know, the space of like five years is <sighs> too many kids, maybe. Like, maybe you shouldn't have that many kids that quickly. That's a lot to deal with. Um, She dealt with increasing pain each time. And eventually their doctor sits them down and is like, she could die, right? Like, this is like, she can't have any more kids, you know? Like, this is, we we need to stop here. So, you know, eventually they shop around for a Catholic priest because they want a priest who will advise them that it's okay for her to take birth control because, you know, how these things go. Sure. Um, They have one more kid during this process, but Liddy (laughs) decides to give up after that. And this may be the most like moon man ass piece of reasoning that I have encountered in his book. (laughs) Although one of the reasons I had chosen Francis to be the mother of my children was her size and strength, which should have enabled her to bear half a half a dozen high performance children. I certainly had not intended to risk damage by pushing her to her design limit. Oh, no, you're right. It's not People Albert Fudd. talk that way about their wives, G. Gordon Liddy. He's like actual Marvin the Martian. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's talking yeah. like about his 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 ill wife and his children as if he's like a fucking GM factory. Like, yeah. Design limitations. <laughs> yeah, their design limit. <laughs> she should have been putting out six high performance children by this period. <laughs> well, so, again. High performance asterisk Liddy yeah. Liddy failure rate. Yeah. <laughs> All of these kids should already be shooting handguns into the air at random. 
They haven't murdered any squirrels. So oh my he, God. He, he quits the FBI and takes a gig with his dad's firm where he immediately gets a huge raise. So this is, again, the only job that would take him, I think, is how I interpret this. Yeah, he yeah. says his dad was desperate for him to come work for them and like had been just trying for years and was so happy. But he also writes that like as soon as he gets to work there, they start fighting every it destroys their relationship because his dad like <laughs> cannot stand him as like a business partner. And my guess is going to be because he keeps suggesting crazy shit that would get them both thrown in prison. And like his dad is constantly, no, you have to not do that. Seems likely. Yeah. Seems like the direction. Seems like the G man. Yeah. So his his description is that despite the fact that he's very good at this job, he has to quit this as well to save his relationship with his father and go into public practice as a uh, for, for a DA's office in New York State in order to preserve their relationship. Now, by the point that he does this, this is like 62 or 63, something like that. The swing in 60s are well underway. And our boy is starting to pay attention to the resistance that has built in the country to the involvement of U.S. troops in a little country I might have heard of called <laughs> Vietnam. Yep. Um, you know, if you're unaware, uh, Vietnam is a country in Southeast Asia that we had a disagreement with and uh, they won. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so this had started the the whole kerfuffle in in Vietnam had started due to the failure of French forces to maintain control of Indochina and a bunch of unhinged fears among U.S. policymakers that the spread of communism in Vietnam would lead to a series of falling dominoes that ended with a unified communist Asia under China. Now. If you read Ho Chi Minh, if you're aware at all of like Vietnamese history, that was never in the cards, right? The last thing anyone in Vietnam ever wanted was to be part of like a Chinese dominated block. And they immediately go to war with China as soon as they kick us out, right? Like that's the first thing that Vietnam does after finishing us off is fight with China and Cambodia. Um, you know that this is this is uh, this is a thing that happens on Yo is this racist all the time. Yeah. Is that you know if these motherfuckers were less racist, they would be able yeah. to achieve their imperialism gains better. They would have realized yeah. not all these chinks love each other. <laughs> yeah, there's a there's a there's a joke that I saw going around Twitter recently, which is like if somebody could have explained had explained to like the the leaders of northern Vietnam right at the start of the war with the U.S. that like in 50 years they'd be allied with the U.S. against China. They would have said, yeah, sounds about right. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah that totally possible. Absolutely yeah. could happen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's mostly what. Yeah, this is their assholes. Yeah, um, it's the, it, this goes into we just talked about this a little on on our episodes about Scott Adams's terrible books and his beliefs <laughs> about the Muslim world. But like one of the things you need to keep in mind, no matter what fucked up shit like a foreign country far away is doing to a group of people that those people are always in their hearts going to be angrier at somebody who lives next door to them. That's right. just the way human be. It's like the United States. Like we get, we, we have our panics over like Islam or our panics over China, but like, Fucking people in Texas always hate people in Oklahoma more than anyone else on this planet. <laughs> like, that's just the way it is. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. No, or their neighbors. Or, <laughs> or their neighbors. Or the people right. in their city. Yeah. 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 Those are it's the people just... they're actually murdering or whatever. <laughs> yes. Yeah. This is just how humans work. So <laughs> it, this is patent uh, nonsense, this whole domino theory. But arch warriors like cold warriors like G. Gordon Liddy absolutely believed it. Here are some other things that G. Gordon Liddy believed about Vietnam. This is this is him summarizing the situation with France. <laughs> Following the close of World War II, when the French were fighting the Viet Minh in Indochina, they were at first highly successful. That was because they were using the Foreign Legion, then manned almost completely by veterans from the most disciplined, ruthlessly efficient practitioners of all-out warfare in history, the Waffen-SS. It was only after that pact was made public and political pressure forced their removal that the French began to lose. He cannot, he cannot stop bringing up the SS. Like almost every chapter, the SS comes up and there's never a good reason for it. And it's like, this is the 80s. This is the 80s. It's pretty, I mean, this is kind of the last time Nazis were basically universally frowned upon, I would have thought. Amongst like the right wing of our- Not amongst G. Gordon Liddy. Yeah, yeah, what do I know? This is, I should start by saying, nonsense. Uh, it is true. There were some members of the Waffen, the, the Waffen SS. So the SS is like a state within a state in Nazi Germany, right? They they are this racial elite. They they have a huge amount of power in the political system. They do a lot of like a lot of the guys, individual like people who are managing all of the different police departments and stuff in in Nazi Germany are members of the SS. Um, they also have, you know, they they, they exercise a lot of control over the industrial apparatus. That was kind of the goal that Himmler was building towards in addition to using them to like breed more Aryans. <laughs> there are divisions of the SS that also fight as regular military units or, or kind of in a fashion similar to. And these guys are called the Waffen SS. Waffen just means weapons, right? So the Waffen mm-hmm. SS is the weapons SS, right? Now, there are a lot of like lies and myths as we're about to talk about about how well the the Waffen SS functions the fact that the foreign legion some of these guys after the war wind up in the foreign legion is is not really weird nor is it out it's not specifically even because of world war 2 right it's not because historically if you look at the foreign legion it's usually like half or more german guys um, this is just like a thing about the way it has always been constructed. The French Foreign Legion has always been heavily Germanic. About 60% of it in the uh, post-war period were Dutch, Austrian, Swiss, Belgian, or most commonly German. Um, and there's a good chance that about 50,000 Germans cycled through French Indochina during the post-war stages of the conflict there. But that doesn't tell the whole story. <laughs> the Viet Minh did like to claim that all of their captive French soldiers were SS veterans, but like that was a propaganda claim. Because no no evidence right. was ever provided of this. We do know that the French military scanned for SS veterans, particularly after 1947. And since SS members had all had a tattoo, their blood group was tattooed on them, it was easy to find and deny them. <laughs> Thus, the first wave of Legion volunteers in Indochina would have included a lot of Germans who had served, who had been Nazi soldiers, right? But very few of these guys would have been SS. Much more of them are Wehrmacht Nazis, right? Um, as this historian from the Ask Historian sub- 
subreddit noted, The Legion was recruited, recruiting about 10,000 men a year, many of them certainly Germans. But by the 1950s, with the average age of a legionnaire in the er very early 20s, most German recruits were young men simply trying to escape the bleak situation in their home country. And the extent of their involvement with the Nazi party was their membership in the Hitler Youth as children. Now, I'm not doing this to defend the reputation of the foreign legion, right? Because <laughs> there's a lot that's messed up about that unit. This is more important because of the, the specific way in which Liddy is wrong about like both the presence that like all of the guys fighting in French Indochina in the in the late 40s were, were SS veterans and they were really good. You know, if they just stayed in there, they would have won that war. The <laughs> fact that he believes that and states that says a lot. Right. Because th this recitation that like the first foreign legion units in Indochina are all SS veterans and they were masters of counterinsurgency is based upon one specific novel. Um, I, I have actually traced back where Liddy gets this belief, and it's from a fiction book called The Devil's Guard. Now, I actually have not seen this written anywhere else. I think I may be like the first person to note this publicly, but it's extremely obvious if you are familiar with the book The Devil's Guard. And I'll go into why I am in a little bit. Later. But The Devil's Guard was a novel published by a guy named George Elford in 1971. So this is about nine years before Liddy writes his autobiography. Uh, the Devil's Guard is based on the experience of a former Waffen SS officer uh, who it starts with him like he's fighting in Eastern Europe, he's fighting in Russia. And then as the war ends, he kind of like fights and sneaks his way across Europe, uh, eventually escaping the allies and traveling to Indochina, where he fights in a 900 man unit of all former SS men. And they're they're just the best at counter. And they're running circles around the Viet Minh using all these different their combat <laughs> skills. And they're so sneaky and they have all these different plans and stuff. And because of how ruthless they are, the Viet Minh just, you know, can't do anything about them. Right now. Alfred presents this. This is a nonfiction novel. It's supposed to be. Uh, but he claims that it's the result of an interview with an anonymous, totally real Nazi. Historians <laughs> now universally agree that this is a lie. There were no there were definitely SS men who served in the Foreign Legion. There was at no point a 900 man unit of former SS veterans. Right. <laughs> that just did not happen. Right. Um, that's from an Indiana Jones sequel. That's from an Indiana Jones book. <laughs> like, like, yeah. right. Yeah. Um, now, it's also like another one of the reasons we know this book is full of shit is that he d has these loving descriptions. This is like a soldier of fortune ass book. So there's loving descriptions of all the different guns they use and how, and a bunch of the weapons he describes them using in detail did not exist at the time or were not in use by Legion troops at the time, right? They simply were not present in that conflict. He just thought they were cool guns. So he wanted to put them in his novel. Um, meanwhile, and there's also, you know, a bunch of different genius counterinsurgency tactics shown in the book. Like at one point, these SS guys kidnap the family members of a bunch of Viet Minh fighters and like stick them in vehicles that they're driving through a part of the jungle so that if the Viet Minh attack a convoy, they'll kill their family members, right? Which is would be a war crime if they'd done it. Um, but it's supposed to be like, you know, this is the kind of heart you can't you can't follow the law yeah. if you're going to win an insurgency. That and a bunch of other tactics that are like that in the book are all taken directly from a different book about British commandos fighting the Japanese in World War Two. Like <laughs> they're lifted directly from this other book. Now, the Devil's Guard is also it's one of the fact that it shows the whole premise of it is that the SS could have won the war in Vietnam if we'd let them. It's one of the most fascist books of military fiction in existence. And right. again, I have to I have to I have to really 
emphasize fiction. Its claims to that it was real have spread myths about the incredible brilliance of the SS as a counterinsurgency force for generations. In 2006, and this is why I know about it, in 2006, online bookstore Abe Books noted that it was one of the top 10 novels sold to U.S. soldiers heading over to Iraq and the only <sighs> piece of war fiction on that list. Because, again, you've got all these kids they haven't actually been to combat yet. They're trying to know what it's like. They want like, you know, advice. So they read this book about supposedly the best counterinsurgency experts who ever existed. The fucking SS, right? Oh. It's just this very popular <laughs> book of lies. And Liddy is kind of the first pop prominent guy who gets taken in by it, right? Which is why everything he writes about Vietnam is very clearly just taken from this, this book of fiction. <laughs> now... I think it's worth spending a little bit more time discussing exactly why Liddy's conception of the Waffen SS is ahistorical. First off, the SS were dog shit at counterinsurgency. There is no evidence that has ever existed in history that these guys had any competence at defeating insurgencies. They are involved in one insurgent campaign in the history of the organization, and they lose it. Right. Like they don't win at all. It's like saying the U.S. is the best counterinsurgency army in the world. It's like, well, what yeah. the fuck are you basing that on? Yeah, right. Yeah. How cool the Navy SEALs are in a movie you watched. They've lost every war they've been involved in. I don't understand why you think they're good at this. That's like, the power of culture, baby. Mm-hmm. Now. The SS are repeatedly noted by their colleagues and Wehrmacht officers for inciting violence from captive populations due to their brutality, right? The SS comes into all these areas like Ukraine, right, in in Eastern Europe, where because of sort of the relationship that area had had to the Soviet Union before the Nazis come in, there was a good possibility of like them taking over and being relatively popular. And they just massacre so many people pointlessly that they inspire uh, like a count, like a, an insurgent mm. campaign against themselves because they're they're the they're Nazis. They're terrible. Yeah. Um, that said, even outside of like, if you're kind of taking it outside of their performance as a counterinsurgency force, there's this idea that's still pretty common, even among people who don't like Nazis, that the SS were an elite combat unit that performed well above like the levels right. shown by their Wehrmacht counterparts. This is a lie as well. There were certainly specific SS combat units that performed well, right? Uh, you know, th- that exists. You can find some some SS military units that had very good battle records, right? But even that does not mean what you might think it means because SS divisions consistently received better gear and more of it. They were much more mechanized than their regular army counterparts because of the, the clout that they had with the, na- the Nazi system. And SS divisions were also larger than normal Wehrmacht army divisions. A Waffen SS division has a standard had a standard size of about 20,000 men compared to 16,500 in the regular army. So if you're saying, well, these Waffen SS divisions performed better than these Fairmock divisions, it's like, well, there are an extra like 3,500 yeah. guys in them. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense that they would do better. Yeah. Better tanks. Well, you know, <laughs> that's that's just the uh, power of Aryanness, you know? Mm-hmm. That's if, like, if yeah. you weren't Aryan, you wouldn't have all those extra dudes. <laughs> yeah. Shit. How did they fight so much better? Well, there were like 3,000 extra dudes. Yeah. That'll, oh. that'll, that, that can matter sometimes. That's so much extra Aryan blood, yeah. of course. <laughs> it's also worth noting that even if you take this into account, they don't actually have 
across the board, a good, like a better combat record than regular units. It is worth noting SS men were picked both for racial and ideological purity, right? Part of what this meant is that regular enlisted soldiers in the Waffen SS were often healthier and in better physical shape than regular army soldiers. But it also means that their officers were picked not on based on their performance, right, on their competence, but based on their adherence to propaganda, Right. Which meant that the most important thing for an SS officer was not what do they know? How well are they trained? How well have they performed? But like, do they fit this sort of vision we have for how they should look? And I found another really good Ask Historians post on this matter, which quotes a February 1943 inspection of an SS division by a Wehrmacht army major. Quote, the commanders of this Waffen SS division did not seem to realize that brave and ideologically misguided young men were being selflessly sacrificed through insane arrogance and a lofty (laughs) disdain for sound training. Belief in the Fuhrer was more important to them than professional ability. Shocked and sobered by the experience, I returned to headquarters where I was given an opportunity to report my impressions to the chief of the general staff. In other words... Officers in the Waffen-SS were often young men like Liddy, filled with very irrational beliefs about combat and their own racial purity. The fact that they were brainwashed meant that they were incapable of judging threats adequately, right? They could not accurately judge the situations that they were in and what was a necessary response. And as a result, they got a lot of their men killed unnecessarily, right? In other words, these were all the guys who became SS officers were the kind of men who might say, disobey orders to crawl through mud with an open surgical yeah. wound. And you don't it's, want that guy making calls in combat. It's really a two-way street. The love for the, like the SS would have loved Liddy. And yeah, you know, oh, he would right have been, he would have immediately made it into the SS. Yeah. <laughs> like the Wehrmacht would have been like, no, get this guy the fuck out of here. He's like, he's not rational. But the SS would have been like, he's irrational. Make him an officer. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. He just, yeah. yeah, right. You know, and at least he knows where he would have fit in. Yeah, Which a lot of people don't, you know, <laughs> a lot of That's people a- don't. Yeah, this was his ideal life situation and he just missed it. <laughs> uh, anyway, that was a long digression, but like I felt it was necessary. <laughs> anyway, you know what else uh, is a fascist paramilitary organization? We'll find out. The sponsors of our podcast. Oh, yeah. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, was bought it. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Jin, and Vlastor on the business. I understand now. It's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return, your time won't, and we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? 
Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Ah, we are back. And boy, I really loved those ads for the Waffen SS. You know, I hope uh, hope a lot of a lot of our listeners join um, so that they can win the war in French Indochina. <laughs> You got it. It's like just as if only there were a few more Nazis there, you know? Yeah. So close. A couple more Nazis going to put that whole house in order. (laughs) Like like we always say, that's all we need. Yeah. I do love the idea that like the SS's experience getting their asses handed to them and the steppes of Eastern Europe would have prepared them for a jungle war (laughs) in Vietnam. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. They were really ready for that. Uh, so by the 1960s, the mid 60s, the anti-war movement has started to pick up serious steam. And Liddy is horrified by this. Young people, as he writes, were, quote, eroding the national will and respect for authority. They were sinking into a netherworld of drug culture. Also, you want to hear G. Gordon Liddy's take on the civil rights movement, Andrew? Oh, I'm sure it's very yeah. measured. Yeah, solid. It's going to be good. Valid demands by blacks for civil rights were often resisted violently by whites and in response many blacks were adopting violence as an offensive rather than defensive tactic this is his you know that's not all wrong and that like yeah. well, the fact that they were getting I, murdered led to like embrace of more radical you i still would call that defensive violence right i, like, I will admit that was much more measured than i thought mm-hmm. it was going to be he is his racism is never like straight up like he's never going to be the guy who says i think you know we should go back to slavery or i i don't think these people like he's always going to be the guy who his racism is more obvious in like the only ways he ever talks about black people right right right. where like anytime he deals with a a violent criminal he's gonna let you know that it's a black man right right? like like that's that's how that's that's where you kind of catch it here right um, now, given his anger at the way things are going in the United States, Liddy has come to feel that his only option is to get a job at the district attorney's office in Poughkeepsie, New York in 1966. And I hate typing the word Poughkeepsie. So I'm I'm very unhappy that this is such a part of the story. Um, but but he points out that like part of why he moves there is that it's, it's his wife's hometown. Right. So he he goes there and he becomes he describes himself as like an unorthodox but dedicated lawman, respected by the <laughs> local police and liked by the judges. And that is to at least some extent true. A New York Times reporter who visited in 1973 and asked around about Liddy got this description of him. 
Liddy led an unusual, even bizarre life. He liked to drive around town in a Jeep. He carried a revolver at all times, even when prosecuting a case, and seemed to enjoy the kidding by the sheriff's deputies who would outdraw him. He would spend his off hours cruising the city with policemen. He's like always hanging out with the cops, going on like raids with them and shit. Not for because it's his job, just because he thinks it's fun. Oh my God. And what like, a f- what a freak! I love the the mental image of um, a fucking Poughkeepsie PD and mm-hmm. G. Gordon Liddy drawing their guns at each other. Yeah, yeah, wonderful. I also stuff. love that little mention that like, oh yeah, he was he wasn't very good at it, right? Like he al- <laughs> he always lost, you know. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm genuinely surprised he didn't accidentally shoot someone in that moment. Yeah, yeah. We don't we don't a hundred percent know he didn't. You know, <laughs> that's true. Like, that's the yeah. So that article also provides us with an amusing summary of some of Liddy's greatest hits in the courtroom. (laughs) Liddy's courtroom activities as prosecutor were occasionally a bit unsettling. On one occasion, he (laughs) waved a knife under the noses of startled jurors, later overturned on the basis of that stunt, an opposing lawyer procalled. And another time, he smashed a piece of wood over the jury rail while prosecuting an assault case involving the use of the plank. Liddy paid for the repair to the jury rail. Oh my God. I love that. Yeah. He loses a case because he pulls a knife on the jury. <laughs> what a clown. He's Holy so funny. Shit. He's so funny. Now, okay. Here's, here's the thing I was going to say about him that is I realized I'm just trying to parse the difference, which is he has humongous like middle school knife catalog guy energy. This guy, this guy, like G. Gordon Liddy never was seen without a Bud K catalog. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. But I will just throw this out there. At least of the people I am friendly with, you might be the person who's closest in my sphere to knife uh-huh. catalog and middle school guy. So that's why I was trying to parse the difference between you and G. Gordon Liddy. And I yeah. think it might just be not being a huge dork, but you know yeah, what I'm I mean, saying. I'm, I'm a huge dork and I own way, way more <laughs> knives than are strictly necessary for any of my purposes. Um, I think one of the big differences is that I've never lost a, a court case because I pulled a knife yeah. on a jury. Yeah. Like, yeah. my knives are more like, you know, used for uh, processing right. animals and stuff like i, 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 I process roadkill with my knives <laughs> yeah. yeah well yeah it's mm-hmm. it's like i guess it's competence mm-hmm. or something i can't mild yeah, I, mild competence right t- that's all tell, it takes yeah that's the difference i guess and yeah. not being a nazi not being a nazi yeah not using them to threaten people for no good reason there's a lot of, of a lot of things right that you can do to not be like g gordon liddy you know i i also have read books about the ss that are not like strictly historically accurate largely right. because i needed to understand aspects of like the the growth of the fascist movement among us soldiers in uh the early parts yeah, of yeah. the global war on terror right Oof. um so one of the most influent, infamous stories about G. Gordon Liddy is that during one of his court cases, he drew and fired his revolver in court in order to, like, make a point. Oh um, this You'll hear this summarized like, yeah, he fired a loaded handgun in a courtroom in order to, like, make an art, like, emphasize an argument. Um the court case and it didn't quite go down that way right so the court case that he's involved in he's prosecuting a dude whose defense claimed that the revolver he'd been accused of using by the police was inoperable so he couldn't have fired it because it didn't work so <laughs> liddy wanted to prove that it did work uh and in order to do that he loaded it with blanks and he fired it during the climax of his argument um this you know 
the judge was startled by this, but like it doesn't seem to have been an ineffective tactic, right? Like it's a little showmanship, but he's not actually just like firing a normal. Right. Right. Like he's shooting a blank. It is kind of it is technically relevant to the case. Um, So there you go. I think if he was a different guy who had not gotten in trouble for committing a series of crimes, um, this would be like, oh, yeah, look at it. He's like this. You know, you this would be kind of celebrated. Right. I do think this is the kind of thing that would be celebrated if he was a normal dude. Right. Right. Yeah. Just don't be a freak and you can get just, to do your idiosyncratic things. Yeah, people. yeah we all like a weirdo, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> you just went too far, G. Gordon Liddy. Yeah. Uh, in general, he was seen as an eccentric but decent lawyer. Uh, one of the defense lawyers who worked opposite of Liddy told the Times later, he was fun in court. You could ridicule him in front of the jury, and he never carried a grudge outside the courtroom. He also worked hard, prepared his cases well, and presented them with a lot of ego. He just didn't seem to have the anxieties, fear, insecurities, and uncertainties that the rest of us have. It was hard to visualize him sweating. <laughs> That's such an interesting thing. Yeah. I up to this point, it's actually really hard to not visualize him in anything but flop sweat constantly. Yeah. So he okay. seems to I, I think, you know, there's again, there's two TV shows that recently came out, both of which have G. Gordon Liddy as a character. Um, there's the one that has one the one show that starred uh, Justin Thoreau playing him, and then I, I mm-hmm. forget the actor for the other show that features him. But like one of them shows him as flipping out and screaming and like physically threatening people in a kind of unhinged way on a number of occasions. And one of them shows him as like this, this very like emotionally cool, calm, like idiot maniac, right? Who is like, who's like constantly is always in this sort of, and I think that that's the Justin Thoreau version. I think that's closer to how Liddy actually behaved, right? Mm -hmm. I do think he, he is very good at maintaining this like, cool outside look right to other people generally speaking even though he is it is very obvious a lot of the time that he's in over his head and incompetent (laughs) like he's always he always has this sense of confidence about him right the most noteworthy moment of Liddy's time in Poughkeepsie was his run-in with Dr. Timothy Leary during a raid and these (laughs) these two guys are really tied together there's they will they will wind up touring the country doing a floor show together later yeah yeah he and Leary and like G- Timothy Leary is kind of the left wing version of G. Gordon Liddy. A lot of what Leary says and gets famous for is bullshit. He is a, a significant, like, fabulist, right? Um, he is a little bit of a con man, you know, but he's also at the core of him. He believes some things very genuinely as an, and right. is extremely committed to those things. And uh, obviously those are better because he's not a Nazi, right? So he's been, <laughs> but he is, you do kind of get an element of like Leary's fundamental, like, the fact that he's willing to tour around with Leary, this right. unrepentant fascist, after both of them have, have gotten out of prison, says a lot about Tim Leary. But their yeah, yeah. first run-in is, so there's this raid um, in 1966 on on Tim Leary's, the place that he's living at the time, that a lot of people consider like the inciting incident of the acid era, right? Like this is the, if you're making a movie, right? If you decide to do a, a miniseries mm. about like the birth of the psychedelic drug movement of acid of like, a lot of the things we consider core to like the hippie movement, you started at this raid in 1966, right? Um, Tim Leary, and and the the background of this is that like Tim Leary and a bunch of his, he he was, you know, a professor uh, at, a, I, forget, I, I think it was Harvard. Yeah. Um, maybe so. I'm wrong about it. I think it was Harvard. Was and Harvard. he like, 
becomes aware of LSD. He starts taking it. He starts doing studies with it. This is during a period where it's legal, right? It gets yeah. made illegal eventually, which is why some other stuff happens. But after he gets kind of like pushed out uh, at his college and is no longer working there, he and a bunch of his associates move into a mansion in Millbrook, New York. Uh, and this mansion is bought. There's this like rich kid stockbroker who like continues to make a lot of money doing stock shit. Like he's never <laughs> interested in anything but getting better at being a stockbroker, but he loves acid, right? So he's like, yeah, you can, I bought this mansion. You can all move in here and do your drug experiments at my mansion. <laughs> Remember when the rich used to be cool? This guy does sound as cool as a stockbroker could be. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, and it's, it's interesting. Leary's always kind of like baffled at the fact that like this guy is so on board with the movement, but also very comfortable and happy being like absolutely a part of the establishment. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, being this like soulless business guy. Um, so this the Leary in between 30 and 60 at any given point, hippie dropout types live in this mansion and do hella drugs, right? Mostly mm-hmm. acid and weed uh, from what we can tell. I assume there's other stuff that gets thrown into the mix. So this is all well and good, except for Millbrook is kind of a small town. I think it's a little more affluent than your average small town. You know, it, it's in upstate New York. And mm-hmm. the citizens of Millbrook are like, once they realize this famous drug wizard is living in their town, they're like, well, we're not really thrilled about this. We don't want Tim Leary living here with a bunch of hippies, you know? Um, and he's he, ha- he is kind of, he has by this point already gotten this reputation as like the devil to a lot of conservatives, right? right. He is the absolute worst person on earth. He's corrupting the youth. Um, and so because he's got this, you know, reputation of spreading the gospel of acid, uh, action is demanded by the citizens of Millbrook. And since G. Gordon Liddy is at this point a well-known anti-drug crusader, he winds up helping to organize the raid on Millbrook, right? He's there during it, theoretically, in order to ensure that proper legal procedure is followed, right? Because he works <laughs> in the DA's office. So... The most notable part of this story is that when the police bust into the mansion late at night after Leary and his his like cohorts have gone to bed, Leary is like wearing a shirt and nothing. He's shirt cocking it, right? Like his dick's just <laughs> swinging in the breeze. And well, all there's this whole argument over like, is this raid legal? What are they doing? Like, where you know, well, while this is all going on and it seems to go on for quite some time, Leary repeat that like the cops are constantly like, Hey man, would you put on some pants? Hey man, like, and Leary, this is one thing I will give him. I love this about him. He's like, absolutely not. Like you are in my home. I will have my dick out if I want to. <laughs> Just repeatedly refuses to not have his, his, his wang hanging out, um, which is honorable, I think. Oh um, yeah. Yeah. It's also worth noting that Liddy, who volunteers, he's not asked like his he, the only thing he's needed there for is to make sure that like legal right. procedure. But he volunteers to help the cops surveil the hippies beforehand for oh, no reason yeah. and nearly blows the whole op as a result of this because again, he's bad at everything. Quote. <laughs> And this is from the New York Times. It seems that Liddy and some policemen, complete with binoculars and walkie-talkie, were staked out in the bushes of the estate when a young woman stepped completely nude from one of the tents on the grounds. A lot of funny things were going on at that place, a deputy explained. Anyway, they became so preoccupied with this girl that they gave their hideout away and blew the whole bit. (laughs) They nearly exposed the whole operation because like, he and these cops can't stop ogling this naked woman. It's like porkies for Nazis. Mm-hmm. It's all Nazis, I know, but come yeah. on. Yeah. You know what else is like porkies? <laughs> 
the sponsors of this podcast. We are, in fact, sponsored by the movie Porky's. Yeah. Uh, or the bar, the establishment. The establishment. All of those things. If it's yeah. called Porky's, we well. are legally responsible for it. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, was we'll it. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Jin. I flaster on the business. I understand now. It's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jin. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Jin, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return, your time won't, and we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Uh, we are B-A-Q. That's how oh, you spell back. That's anyway, good. Mm-hmm. So Liddy spends three years, I think, working for the DA's office in Poughkeepsie before he decides that it's time to take a more active role, trying to wrench the ship of state away from degeneracy and leftism. And the way he's <laughs> going to do this is by running for Congress. That's how he describes it, right? That after a couple of years, he's like, I'm just not doing enough to fight against this. So right. I've got to I've got to get into politics in order to like really, really, you know, make a difference here. That's how he describes it. The Times has a different story. (laughs) They note that late in his run for the DA's office, a local uh, resident had complained about Liddy's actions in a narcotics case um, and that like that wound up becoming an official complaint to the State Commission of Investigation. The case gets dropped for lack of evidence. uh, But this quote from that lawyer, Mr. Tepper, who had had worked against Liddy, um, gives us an idea of how he kind of might have gotten forced out. Like he may have run for office because it was he was was made known to him. There's not going to be a space for you here forever. Right, right, right. He was always expecting the big narcotics bust, Mr. Tepper said. Gordon kept pushing, pushing all the time. He probably bent the rules a bit now and then to collect evidence, but I can't recall anything specific. 
Now, his autobiography makes no mention of this, but we do know there were complaints against him. And we do, you get the feeling that like, yeah, maybe he was kind of pushed out to an extent here. Or at least there right. was some like, he had the he had the feeling, I'm not going to always have a role here, right? Right, right, right. So Liddy, now 38, decides he's going to challenge the leading Republican candidate in New York's 28th Congressional District. Uh, the relative of one of our former guests, Maggie May Fish, uh, Hamilton <laughs> Fish Jr. So- these guys are related to that serial killer and the po- political dynasty, the Fishes. Yeah, so that's cool. Anyway, uh, Hamilton Fish Jr. is kind of like an establishment Republican, right? He's he's probably someone who would like was closer to the Dims than like a dude like G. Gordon Liddy. Right. Um, and so Liddy is kind of running against him on a very extreme right wing platform. His campaign had three planks: taxes, which were too high, crime, and Vietnam. Right. On crime, Liddy presaged much modern right wing discourse when he said, God help us if the thin blue line of protection crumbles. <laughs> He's a thin blue line guy. Yeah. Way back I mean, I, in the I, day. Someone had to be. Someone yeah. got it. Mm-hmm. It is funny cool. how like all of the thin blue linest guys wind up in prison for committing crimes. Yeah. <laughs> what do, a, do love how consistent that is. <laughs> Meanwhile, on Vietnam, he was clear that he supported U.S. commitment to the war effort, quote, but not our conduct of the war. And whenever you hear that, what that means is he thought that we hadn't committed quite enough war crimes. Right. right? If we'd massacred another couple of million people, we would have won it. Yeah. Like, that's all we was taking. We needed more SS guys out in the jungle. Uh, so give it. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's it's very funny. He, he would have like if he had gotten any chance to weigh in, he would have pulled out that fiction book about the SS and slammed yeah. it on the table. Ugh. So Liddy lost badly uh, and eventually was forced to drop out and back fish in order to have a future in the Republican Party. His supporters called him a sellout, but he got a job running the Dutchess County Nixon campaign. One lawyer interviewed by The Times called it a deal. Right. So basically, (laughs) look, man, stop making trouble for this guy who is. Yeah, he's not far right like you, but, you know, he can win unlike you because you're a maniac. Mm -hmm. Um, And if you if you play ball, you'll get a job running the Nixon campaign in this other county. Um, And and he says, yes, you know, he is always a team player. Right. That is something you got to give Liddy. He's going to get you in trouble because he's a maniac. But like he will do what he thinks is best for the party, even if it's not what's best for him. Like, that's kind of what he's famous for. Yeah. So he's a he's a toady. He's he's an ambitious toady. Yeah, he he is a henchman. Right. He's got a hench. Yeah. 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 Liddy is an adequate performer in this role. Nixon was more impressed by his loyalty uh, and his willingness to take a personal hit to his pride for the team than anything else. Right. He he. this is the thing. Dick Nixon is a guy who respects loyalty to him. Right. And that's what he right. sees from Liddy. And so, you know, it becomes it kind of like gets through the grapevine like, all right, Liddy's somebody that we can trust in the Nixon White House. Um, and as a reward, when Dick Nixon wins office, G. Gordon Liddy is given a position as special assistant for organized crime to the secretary of Treasury. Right. Which is this is kind of a dream gig for him. He loves the idea of being like a drug warrior, of like being, you know, fighting the gangsters and stuff. Um, and he, you know, he sees this, and I think it probably was. There was this idea, well, maybe this guy's got a future. Maybe one day this guy could even have a cabinet position. So let's try him out, you know, at a lower level, see how he works. Liddy 
instantly proves himself to be the kind of guy that <laughs> cannot be trusted with power. Um, he develop, he gets in a lot of trouble very quickly at the Department of Treasury because he keeps trying to set policy, right, on his own, just sort of apropos without any backing, like saying, this is our stance on guns. We won't pursue these kind of gun control laws. He'll give like all these speeches at like gun control lobby events saying that Department of Treasury will never do this. And then his boss will be like, the fuck are you talking about? She couldn't <laughs> Liddy. Like you never cleared this with anybody. Like you're not supposed to be saying these things. Um, he was also bad at being a drug warrior, right? Now, because he had experience as an FBI agent, he was asked to help organize an effort to reduce drug smuggling across the Mexican border, Operation Intercept. The goal of this plan was to punish the Mexican government for refusing to allow U.S. air power into their country to spread poison on crops. The response, Operation Intercept, is to punish Mexico by shutting down the border with legal gridlock. The idea is you have the police question and search every single person who comes in from Mexico, right? Which is includes Americans. And absolutely, mm-hmm. this is a busy reason. There's a lot of region. There's a lot of business that comes through in here. There's a lot of tourism. It just shatters the way the region functions, right? It's like, it's a calamity. It's a calamity for all of these, the U.S. side of the border too, right? It fucks up the local economy. It does a lot of damage. And it, it's, it, there's no like, nothing but chaos as the result. <laughs> the, the New York Times summarizes, Border communities were disrupted by lengthy searches. Traffic across the frontier was halted for hours. Tourism suffered. Liddy sought to justify the confusion with patriotic speeches in the local communities. He was dismissed as a treasury man in 1971. (laughs) (laughs) Now, for his part... Liddy describes Intercept as having been a success, right? The people who thought it was a failure just didn't understand the goal, which was to fuck up life for everyone on the border, right? His idea was like, well, look, yeah, it fucked up everything for Americans, but it fucked them up worse for Mexicans. And they, the Mexican government could handle the disruption less well, right? He, he, and this is his, this is his defense of Operation right. Intercept. <laughs> it was an exercise in international extortion, pure, simple, and effective, designed to bend Mexico to our will. <laughs> <sighs> Now, Liddy claims this is a big win and that he was only fired uh, right after by the Treasury Department because he made too many good recommendations to his boss, Gene Rossadays, which is like, (laughs) it's very funny because, so, number one, Operation Intercept, I guess you can debate, you know, like there's, there's, there's definitely like an argument to be made that like, well, yeah, you can... You, you, some of their goals were achieved by creating this much chaos, but like the Treasury Department considers it kind of a disaster at the time because of all of the complaints that it generates, because of how much it pisses people off. Um, so I don't think it was considered that by anyone but Liddy, really. Sure. Um, the other thing is that like, he 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 cites in his book, you know, his boss being jealous of him because every time they would argue, Liddy was right, right? You know, he was just, he made too many good calls and it was really pissing off his boss, embarrassed him. One of the good decisions, we'll go into one of these, one of the good decisions that Liddy cites as like the thing that drove his boss crazy was the customs division department is like, trying to figure out how to arm air marshals at this point, because there's a lot. We talk about this in our like episodes on the golden age of terrorism. A lot of planes getting hijacked at this period, mm-hmm. late 60s, early 70s. This is the golden age of hijacking a plane. It took <laughs> nothing to hijack an air, a commercial aircraft in this period. Yeah, and so yeah. we're starting to put air marshals on planes and we're, tra- you know, it's a when you're considering what firearm to give a man who would be expected to shoot it in a plane. That's a 
that's a complicated thing to decide. That's a lot more a, a lot more difficult than just deciding like what's the best gun to give a cop, right? Right. Where it's like, yeah, no, you ha- there's a lot of like a lot of very complex engineering questions about like and, and to to today, by the way, um our air marshals are armed with firearms that have very specific kinds of bullets that are made to function in a certain way on planes to minimize yeah. dangers of depressurization, overpenetration, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So they're trying to decide what's the best thing weapon to arm these guys with. And Liddy is like, you should give them 357 Magnum firearms loaded with hollow point. And now he picks. <laughs> there's not actually a good reason why it should be a 357 over like a nine millimeter. Liddy just loves revolvers and he loves the 357 cartridge because it's the quote unquote most powerful gun in the world. It's the only reason he picks the 357. Now, he is right that hollow points are a better choice than full metal jacket. And the reason for this is that hollow points are less likely to overpenetrate, right? The point purpose of a hollow point is that it expands it explodes, more when it hits right? meat, right? It expands when it hits meat and that yeah, transfers yeah. more force from the bullet into the body of whoever you've hit. So oh, it's right. less likely to go through them and then through something critical in the plane, right? That is accurate. Liddy claims that there's like this big debate you know, over it and nobody believes him. Uh, I'll buy that just because it's actually weirdly, it's if you study the history of how people learned about how bullets function, it takes a weirdly long time to figure out anything about <laughs> bullets. <laughs> so I, I'll give him that may have been the case, but the evidence that he cites to make this case, if he was actually making this argument, you know, as opposed to everyone being like, well, obviously hollow points are less likely to overpenetrate. <laughs> if he is not lying about that, the evidence that he cites in his book is how he made the case about hollow points being a better put. It's nuts. It's and I'll give you one. I'll give you one quick, uh, like guess as to how it's nuts, Andrew. Oh, did he fire a gun on a plane? No, no, okay. no. But it, he, he brings up the Nazis again. He, he oh, the good. SS oh, comes course. into it again. His other, that's his other move. He has <laughs> that's two moves. His other move. He either shot a gun or brought up the SS. Right. <laughs> Quote: Here's Liddy making the case for why air marshals should carry uh, hollow points. I cited Nazi experiments using live Jews that determined one 7.9 millimeter ball solid bullet from a Mauser rifle could pass through and kill up to 16 humans lined up in a row and noted that while a stray solid point round through the fuselage wouldn't result in compressive decompression of the aircraft, it might well sever a vital control cable. Now, (laughs) that's fucking nuts. Number one, completely irrelevant, right? We are talking about a handgun. And he is talking about the penetration of a rifle. Round, right, right, right. Totally different, different planets in, in every way, ballistically, a rifle round versus a handgun round. It is not relevant in any way to be like, you know, when the Nazis shot, <laughs> lined up Jews end to end, they were able to kill 16 people with a single. That has nothing to do with the question, G. Gordon Liddy. That's a crazy <laughs> thing to bring up here. You gotta stop. Yeah. You know. List like you, you're List. bringing it up so many times. Yeah. It's really, yeah. Oh, do that you is, have any that, other sources? That is not. That does not make any point that's relevant to what you're trying to argue here. Yeah. Um. You just wanted to talk about the SS killing Jewish people. That's yeah. literally the only reason you said this. You just imagine like Nixon being like, "Anyone have any thoughts?" When he raises his hand, it's like, not Nazi thoughts. And yeah, then his yeah. hand just slowly goes down. <laughs> thoughts that do not involve the SS. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking, well, I guess yeah, not. just a, just a, a maniac. Um, <laughs> so Liddy claims his recommendation is adopted. Um, and even in his 
recitation of events, the fact that his recommendation is adopted is a disaster, right? Because the Bureau <laughs> nickel plates all of their guns in order to make sure that they're less vulnerable to like, you know, the the air and like sea, like saltwater, you know, heavy places, right? Um, and because of this, it like fucks up the chambering of the round and all of the guns have to be returned to the factory. <laughs> <laughs> Liddy presumably knew they were going to do this, but didn't think to check on if it would matter because he just loves revolvers so much. Like, again, even in his recitation of events to make himself look good, he gives them advice on what kind of gun and round to use. And it is such a disaster that they have to recall all of the firearms. Like, that's the best that this goes for him is he's completely wrong. Oh, my God. And it's like the thing he loves the most. He's like... Come on. Very funny. Oh, my God. So bizarre. Anyway, I think that's going <laughs> to that's going to close us out on episode three of the G. Gordon Liddy story. How, how are you feeling, Andrew? This is I I should have said probably before we even started this. I'm not a person that knows like a ton about Watergate at all. So this is uh-huh. all wonderful. Yeah. I'm Next episode, so much. Yeah. we're really gonna get into it, right? Can't yeah. wait. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> but we've <laughs> we've had to we've had to go through a lot to set up why Liddy's <laughs> even there. And I bet you're wondering if you're a normal person. I bet you're wondering like. How the fuck did anyone trust him doing Watergate shit? Given this guy's background. That's a solid <laughs> question, Rob. How did he yeah. get that job? Um, but, I mean, it, you see the modern version of this in Trump or the the like you, you kind of like the reason he gets it is because he's willing to do it. Yeah, 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 yeah. That is, that is, you you have anticipated where this oh, story is. Oh, sorry, goes. sorry, sorry, sorry. Uh, very yeah. well, very well. <laughs> so, but yeah. anyway, Andrew, you got anything to plug? Just, you know, still do the podcast, Yo, Is This Racist? Um, I am a writer on Strike, so um, if anyone is um, wanting to support us, hopefully, I guess there's a chance I'm not a writer on Strike as you're listening to this, but Likely I will still be. And even if I'm not still on strike, the overwhelming possibility is going to be SAG will still be on strike, the uh, Screen Actors Guild. Um, So the Entertainment Community Fund, um, please, if you can and are able, send money to that. Um, You know, it's the only way a lot of people are getting through. Not the only way, but it's one very helpful way that a lot of people are getting through this uh, labor action that, uh, you know, they're the studios are trying to extract as much pain as possible and you know why not not let them yeah why not not let them and if you want to extract pain (laughs) you know um how to figure that out yourself you know find a way to take pain out of the world and ideally bottle it in such a fashion that you can then sell it back to somebody else right that's capitalism baby yes that's how it all works yeah, this is what we sell. The other people's paid. Or our own pain? I don't remember. Yeah. Anyway, go to hell. Behind the Bastards is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com. Or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Pride from Tomboy X, celebrating pride in the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women, creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. 
obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes three extra small through six X. Visit TomboyX.com. MTV's official challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.